And welcome back to Dads on the Air. This is coming to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network. And in this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, family and parenting, men's and boys' issues, and more. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and our guest today is Jeff Apter. Jeff is the author of more than 20 music biographies. His subjects include Johnny O'Keefe, Keith Urban, and the Bee Gees. Jeff has been on the show to talk about his books on Malcolm Young from ACDC and George Young from the Easy Beats. For good measure, Jeff has also written about a third brother from the Young family, the quintessential lead guitarist Angus Young. Jeff's new book is Behind Dark Eyes, the true story of John English. So Jeff, welcome back to Dads on the Air. Thank you, Bill. Good to be back. So uh, for those not familiar with John English and I don't know how many there are, everyone I know seems to uh, to remember John well, but um, he burst on the scene as part of the rock opera superstar in 1972, nearly 50 years ago. Actor John Waters described him as tall, loose-limbed and athletic. How would you describe him? It's not a bad uh, summation of the man, is it? Mm. He uh, probably forgot to mention, you know, raccoon eyes. Yes. Uh, which everybody remembers. Yeah, look, John was... Well, fast forward many, many years, I, I wrote an obituary when John died in 2016, and I said he was Australia's original and best multitasker. He was someone who excelled as a as a pop star and then, and then a rock star with his band, the Foster Brothers. He's someone who excelled on the stage, particularly with the Pirates of Penzance, and he's someone who really made his mark on the small screen as a dramatic actor in Against the Wind and as a comic actor in All Together Now. It's very, very hard to come up with anybody else who's achieved absolute top-level excellence in those three different fields. People have dabbled, and a lot of musicians have acted, and a lot of actors have become singers and so on, but I don't think anybody has achieved the level of success in those different areas that John did. And I think, quite frankly, he could have been a standalone star in any of one of those chosen fields if he decided to just concentrate on the one. Mm. So, yeah, he was a very rare talent, a uh, complicated guy. Um, he was a 10-pound pom, came over when he was quite young, had a, a, a an intriguing and, and quite eccentric mother whose name was Sheila, and John inherited quite a lot of her traits, such as um, don't trust the establishment, um, speak your mind, uh, <laughs> be very forthcoming almost all the time. And he... On the flip side of being this big superstar and a very public figure, he was the proud father of four who lived, um, when he was not touring and not performing, lived a very quiet life up on the Hawkesbury River with his, uh, his young family and his wife, who he married, who was a, his high school sweetheart. So mm. there was uh, so many sides to John English. I think he was round, to be honest. <laughs> well, the, the subtitle of your book is The True Story of John English, and I take it from that that, with the family's permission, you've uh, you've made it a warts and all revelation of, uh, of of what John English was really like. Look, that was that was really pleasing. I've worked as a, a ghostwriter. I've worked as a co-writer. I've worked on unauthorized books, um, and in this, and I'm a bit wary sometimes about, I guess you call them official books because they can be sanitized. But the thing about John's family, and this was 
very, very uh, refreshing, is that they basically approached me to write the book. Uh, we managed to get a, a good publishing deal together. And then they basically said, look, if you need any help connecting with people, uh, just ask. We're happy to talk on the record and basically let me do my thing. And it was fantastic. And, you know, some situations where things were revealed that probably didn't reflect John in the best light, such as his struggles with alcohol and depression and adultery, they were fine with it. They said, this is, we want a real picture of John, the type of book that he probably would have approved of if he was still alive. That was really refreshing. You know, it's, um, it's not always the case. You sometimes can have people being a little bit controlling in those kind of situations, but they were nothing like that at all. In fact, last weekend we did a, uh, an official launch of the book and the whole front row of this event was his family who had nothing but praise for the book. So it was, yeah, it was a, a really rewarding. And, and, yeah, I called it the true story because, you know, I genuine, genuinely believe what's there is, is as close to the truth as we can get without John being here to <laughs> confirm or deny. But certainly I, I'd like to think I spoke to all the right people. Uh, so going back now from that uh, rock musical Jesus Christ, Christ Superstar where he played Judas, he went on to become uh, a songwriting rock star. He sold two million albums. He had, As you mentioned, he had various TV shows. He was on the uh, a comic opera, The Pirates of Penzance from 1879, so that gives you a bit of variety. Have you got any thoughts on what he was best at or perhaps maybe he should have concentrated on one rather than all that, that range? Well, I, I'll admit I enjoyed him most as a rock and roller. Growing up in, in Sydney in the 60s and 70s, I was a suburban kid raised on Countdown, and I knew him through those early hit songs, you know, Turn the Page, Hollywood 7, and so on. And I knew him as the face on Countdown. Quite often he'd host Countdown when, you know, poor old Molly might have slipped off the couch or <laughs> been unavailable. And he was just very, to me, he was just this very charismatic figure. In the early 80s, my older brother, who was a big English fan, he said, you've got to come and see John play with the Foster Brothers. And this is a point in my life where my friends and I, we're listening to... David Bowie and Lou Reed and Neil Young and Bob Dylan and being considering ourselves far too cool for the mainstream. Mm. But um, I went along anyway. And it was like being hit with a truck. <laughs> this was a, a true rock and roll band in the purest sense. You know, they played loud and hard and really, really well. But with the added difference, and, and, and this was the twist, is that John was funny. He was a naturally funny guy who could stop a very serious song and tell a joke or lead the band through what he used to call the floor show where they do these silly dance routines and things and i was hooked these were these were great shows as much as i loved midnight oil and bands like that they weren't funny mm. <laughs> <laughs> and john managed to break down that barrier and this is what he did so well in the pirates of Penn's band break down the barrier between being on stage and the audience you know you really felt like there might be a thousand, two thousand people in the audience, but everyone felt as though they were included in the act, and that's a very, very rare skill. And that's what he did. So yeah, from my perspective, I, I really enjoyed him as a rocker. But having said that, I also saw him in the Pirates and a few other productions, and I thought I loved that as well. I just thought that it was a natural transition for him to go from fronting a rock and roll band to appearing in a nineteenth-century light opera from <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan. And sort of turning into a bit of a rock show anyway. Mm. Uh, you know, he brought a lot of swagger to that role. Um, so, as, as he did with Superstar, playing Judas. So, yeah, there was always a good chunk of John English in whatever he did. Uh, that's for sure. As you mentioned, uh, he was a natural comic. And uh, you have some funny stories in your book. I think you mentioned he was never very good at managing money, was he? Money wasn't his strong point. 
point or no it must be said i think he enjoyed spending it but didn't really keep a close eye on it i mean later in his career when he when he was um trying to i guess trying to give birth to paris paris being his uh life uh, lifelong obsession with greek mythology which he then transformed into this rock opera that he desperately wanted to be his legacy to be the work that most people remembered him for and um he spent a lot of his own money in a project that to record the album alone cost something like a million dollars and there are other projects as well uh, buskers and angels and other later projects that he sunk a lot of his own money and creative energy into and it just didn't take off it just didn't succeed so yeah it was it was one of john john was very human um he had many flaws and certainly he made a lot of money he made particularly when he was at his peak with um, working with simon gallagher in in pirates and mercado and so on simon told me the story that he once sat down with john and said do you know how much money we've actually made over the years and, and john had no idea and simon while he didn't disclose the figure said that when he wrote it down on a piece of paper john's eyes <laughs> was rolled back he couldn't believe it because they were filling 1500 seat theaters eight times a week for months on end um you know john was at that time was pulling on something like and this is the mid-80s, uh, somewhere around $10,000 a week mm-hmm. for eight performances of, of um, Pirates, which even now is good money. Back then was a uh, very healthy uh, return, particularly in Australia, where the market's smaller. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, John made a lot of money. He spent a lot of money, and he certainly um, didn't have a great handle on hanging on to his money. There wasn't much left when he when he died, sadly. As well as the, uh, his comic abilities, both on and off the stage, there were also the sad stories, and uh, you point out that he was spending extended time away from from his home touring and working to support the lifestyle and i guess he'd he'd really would have rather been sitting at home on the farm yeah it's a real it was a real tug of war and it was tough to write about that as a parent myself i'm lucky that i get to spend a lot of time in fact i think my kids get sick to death and they'd rather i go out on the road every now and again but with john it was you know he had at one point he had four young kids on as i say on a property uh, a little bit isolated his wife was there and there weren't a lot of neighbours, but it was the perfect retreat for John, who might go out and spend two or three months touring, you know. And this was well before times of social media and, and great internet and all that kind of stuff. So you really are isolated from your family. The telephone and writing letters home is really your only connection. So the world seemed a much, I guess, a much larger place back then. So John, absolutely, he took great pride in being a parent, being a father of these kids. But in order to maintain the lifestyle that you just have raising four kids costs a lot, but John had a a 25 acre property and they had animals and they had, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of things to maintain and a certain standard of living that they were enjoying when John was doing really well, which necessitated him going out, as I say, for extended periods. But also John was a creative artist and he could come home, he'd be home for a couple of weeks and then the itch would begin the creative itch you know the urge to get out there and perform in front of audiences and to come up with something new and it was a tug of war for a lot of his life which to his credit he managed to maintain pretty well for probably 20 years and and that in itself was quite an achievement it, it did unravel over time solution that john came up with which i thought was pretty good was when his kids became young adults he took them out on the road with him gave him jobs in his crew. His son, Jonathan, had interest in, and he's now a professional musician. So he was interested in, in a career in entertainment. So John said, great, come out with me. And, and John put him on the road crew and, and taught him the basics 
you know, touring and performing. So that helped, and he did the same with his daughter Josie. So that helped maintain a, an ongoing relationship with them. But it, it did prove difficult after a while, and and in his later years, due to a bunch of things, uh, his marriage breakdown, geography, he was living somewhere, he's living a fair distance from his kids. There was a bit of separation, but right at the end, he managed to reconnect with them very strongly and, and had made plans. And this is one of the tougher things I found writing about Bill, was that literally on his deathbed, he was about to be operated on for a number of conditions, and some of them quite urgent and, and quite threatening. And he made a, a sort of pact with his kids you know, we're going to spend more time together. We're going to go back on these holidays that we used to have. And he actually intended to recuperate uh, in a granny flat at the back of uh, the yard of one of his uh, kids' houses. So it was that attempt to really reconnect with his kids later on in his life. It was um, So that, that, that kind of push and pull, you know, that tug of war between being a creative artist, a performing artist, and trying to be a homebody and a father and a parent, it proved to be a lifelong struggle for John. We're speaking today with Jeff Apter, who is the author of Behind Dark Eyes, the true story of John English. Jeff, we've reached the stage of the show where he asks our guests to pick a song. I'm sure you'll have a suitable John English song for us. There's plenty to choose from, Bill, there's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. But I thought, rather than one of the obvious hits, he wrote a song called Glass Houses. And, and John, frankly, most of John's hits were other people's songs that he managed to not just sing, but to reinterpret and inhabit and really put his stamp on, you know, songs like Turn the Page and Handbags and Glad Rags and Hollywood 7. But John was also a very accomplished songwriter. Glass Houses, it reminds me a lot of the Who song, the Pete Townsend song, Behind Blue Eyes. John was a big fan of Pete Townsend and the Who. And this song, uh, while it's a different musical style, it captures that sort of autobiographical quality. And if you listen to the lyrics, it's basically John giving his life story in song. It's, it's a really powerful powerful song and I think a bit of a a lost John English classic
And that was Glass Houses by John English, as specially chosen for us today by our guest, Jeff Apter. Jeff is the author of a new book called Behind Dark Eyes, the true story of John English. Jeff, you mentioned briefly then Paris. This was not the city, but it's about the, um, the story of Paris and Helen of Troy. It was a proposed musical which he devoted much of, uh, of his later life to, but why was John English so obsessed about this work, do you think? It's interesting, you know, most kids are raised on Dr. Seuss. John was raised on the Greek myths. You know, he loved the story of Jason and the Argonauts and the, uh, the Trojan horse and the Trojan Wars and Helen of Troy and Paris. And um, these stories stuck with him. There was just something really profound about them that he really, really embraced. So when it came at the point of his career where he really, as I said earlier, he really wanted to write his legacy, if you will, something that people would remember John English, the creator, for. Not just John English, the song interpreter or the, uh, you know, the uh, stage actor or the TV actor, but John English, the composer. These are very juicy stories. It's very easy to, to transfer them into a kind of modern, setting if you like you know there's there's lust and there's power and there's war and there's violence and there's bloodshed and there's passion and all these great things it, it was the perfect thing i think uh for john to to try to capture and he did a, a stellar job i mean he worked with a guy called david mckay uh, a record producer who he'd met on on one of his earlier albums um uh, the some people album and they brought in this amazing cast of performers to record the album. You know, it was uh, Denise Roussos and Barry Humphreys and Doc Neeson and John Waters and Harry Nilsson in one of his last ever performances and the London Symphony Orchestra. You know, this was a big, big production. It cost something like a million dollars to, to record the album, a good chunk of which was John's. And the intent, as had been established by Jesus Christ Superstar way back in the early 70s, is you record the album, you hope that you, you dream, you, you absolutely um, desire, you know, your intent is for the album to become a hit and then for producers to say, great, let's stage this musical, let's stage this rock opera. And in the case of Paris, while it was a you know, well-regarded album, I remember it being launched at the Sydney Opera House with a huge splash and a lot of fanfare. It just wasn't quite the hit that it needed to be in order to get producers involved. And also the simple fact was to stage Paris in the way that John had envisaged would have cost millions of dollars. It was a big investment and a big risk. And um, ultimately it got to the, the desk of Cameron McIntosh. Now Cameron McIntosh at that time in the early 90s, he was the guy who produced uh, Les Mis and Cats. He was the man you were. He was like a, the Steven Spielberg of the theatre, if you like. He was the guy you knew had the vision to be able to bring something like Paris to life. And frankly, he, he just it just didn't connect with him. Um, he thought it was a bit too 1970s in some ways. And also he could see how expensive and how big a risk it was to stage. So it never came to fruition. Ultimately, you know, John tried endlessly over a series of years, probably the next 10 years or so after its release, to try to convince producers to get on board. But he was very stubborn at the same time. You know, his manager was saying, well, why don't we look at the storyline? Can we make it a happy ending? Because, of course, mm. the story of Paris and Helen and Troy doesn't end too well. And he said, no, 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 this is the story. It's got to be real. Um, and eventually he relented and allowed it to be performed by amateur theatrical groups, and many of whom performed it, and admirably. But 
when you've got a budget of about 50 bucks, it, that doesn't even cover the Trojan horse, if mm. you get my drift. Mm. So yeah. the productions is as big-hearted and as well-produced as they were, they weren't the big, big West End Broadway production that John had hoped for. So mm. he took that to his grave with him, sadly, the, the fact that Paris was never quite fulfilled in the way that he'd hoped. Well, he, yes, he did manage to get other people strongly committed, like you mentioned, David Mackay and his manager, Peter Ricks, and I think there were some other people that, you know, got their wallets out. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's another one of these tragedies, I think, because it effectively took over John English's life, didn't it? I mean, he couldn't even get concentrate on other projects while this was boiling away. No, well, he'd worked on Paris throughout the 80s in, in and amongst everything else he was doing at that time. He was still a recording artist, a performing artist. He was doing The Pirates, which became a huge hit. But once Paris was out, uh, while he continued touring and he continued working with Simon Gallagher, it really became his obsession to get it to the stage. You know, John lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on this project, but I think just as importantly, he lost his confidence. You know, he thought, damn, this was the first time, really, if you look back over his career, going back to Superstar, it was the first time he'd failed at a very public level. So what he did in a very typical John English fashion was go, well, bugger it, I'm going to do something else. And he went away and wrote a a piece called Buskers and Angels, which he then again sunk a lot of his own money into and not only starred in it and wrote it, but produced it. And anybody who's produced anything from, you know, a shopping list onwards (laughs) knows how complicated that can be. And it wasn't ready. Even his kids said to me when I interviewed them for the book, you know, we tried to tell him it just wasn't ready. It wasn't properly workshopped. And John, stubborn as he was, took it out on the road anyway, and it was a huge failure. So by, you know, the end of the 90s, John had had back-to-back flops on a very large scale. And uh, it really took its toll on him. The Black Dog of Depression was always nipping at his heels anyway, as it did with so many creative people. And you know, John always liked to drink, but in the past it was a drink to celebrate, and now it was a drink to commiserate. And um, that really took hold of him for many years afterwards. And, and it really wasn't until the last five years or so of his life when he got involved with a project called The Rock Show that he really started to, his career was really revitalized. He, um, you know, in his personal life suffered too. His marriage broke up. He spent some periods in rehab to try to address depression and alcoholism it, it got very very heavy he was estranged from his not estranged he was isolated from his kids uh by geography and his personal demons and so on so there's a lot going on and not all of the good in that latter period of john english's life um but as i say once he got together this project called the rock show which he performed in a number of different iterations over the last um in the last seven or eight years of his life that really brought him back into the public eye, and that was quite a successful show. So it was, it was, it was something. It still wasn't Paris, um, but it certainly brought John back into the public eye. And, and when he, even when he died, he was about to go off and do another rock show tour. You know, so the interest in the show was um, was consistent and really, really strong. And um, I think just reminded people what a great singer and performer he was. I think he perhaps had some vision of what was happening when he said at one stage I'll probably only make it to 70. Well, unfortunately, he didn't even get there. But uh, at the end there, there was a mystery about what actually happened. There, there was a, He damaged his ribs in Adelaide, didn't he? But we, no one really knows what happened. Yeah, there are a few different versions of that story. And, it's you know, as a writer, when you find there's conflicting accounts, it's not correct, in fact, to, to, to try to give your own interpretation. But something bad happened. John got injured broke his ribs, 
played in typical John English fashion, played a gig with not just broken ribs, as it turned out, but a punctured lung as well. Mm. <laughs> mm. I mean, only a John English could do that. Uh, he got back to Coffs Harbour, where he was living at the time, and spoke to his kids, and they said, you've got to go, got to go to the hospital. Obviously, there's something wrong, because he had trouble breathing as well. And when he did, they found out that he had a um, aortic aneurysm. So he was transferred from Coffs Harbour to Newcastle, but because of his broken ribs, there was a period where he, they needed to heal before they could operate on this aneurysm. And um, that was a period of a couple of weeks where the, the, they started to um, circle the wagons. His family came back, his wife, Carmen, who he'd never divorced. She was with him, as were all his kids um, and, and grandkids as well. And they really, it was a very emotional period, but also, you know, in typical John English fashion, there was a lot of humour too. You know, even as they took him into the operating theatre, for this, this very complicated surgery, as it turned out, he was making a joke about, you know, the, he said, oh, my, um, the, the booties that you have to wear, they don't match my hat, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Mm. And, you know, his, the aneurysm, they rated levels of A, and John had, I think it was a triple A rated, and he said, well, there's nothing to be concerned about, it's just a battery. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he managed to find humour in, in this very, very dark time. And uh, unfortunately, what subsequently happened is when, they began operating on John. Uh, they repaired his ribs, but they found out that he had cirrhosis of the liver. Um, and that made operating on the aneurysm much more complicated. And um, unfortunately, he died uh, after the surgery. Heartbreaking stuff. Um, no one expected that. Everybody I spoke to who worked with John, knew John, loved him. Some who had problems with him felt that he was bulletproof. You know, he was this big, strong, raccoon-eyed guy that everybody knew who, who seemed indestructible. And for him to die in quite a sudden fashion was was such a shock, you know, for so many people. He was 66. He'd, he'd lived a big life. He'd taken very big bites, but still no one expected him to die. And uh, your book is coming out actually on the five-year anniversary, so uh, it, it's very, uh, very topical. And I think you've done a, a wonderful service in bringing John English back to us uh, by uh, through your book. Uh, I'm... I might just mention, too, that a proportion of the proceeds of this book will go to Support Act, which is Australia's charity dedicated to helping artists, crews and music workers uh, in tribute to uh, all that John did, I'm sure. So, uh, Jeff, unfortunately, uh, we've come to the end of our time, but uh, I'd just like to once again give a very special thank you for coming on to Dads on the Air. It's, uh, it's always great to speak with you. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you very much for the invitation. So uh, don't forget now, we'll, uh, we'll be back next week with another show. Uh, we'd love to hear from any of our listeners. You can go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, send us an email, and we'll be in touch. If you'd like to listen to this show or any of our shows, go to our your favourite podcast app or our website, dadsontheair.com.au, or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And we'll be back next week with another show on Dads on the Air. <laughs>